everyone. Um, <clears throat> today's reading is from James uh, 1, verse 1 through to 18. So the greeting, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes of the dispersion, greetings. Testing of your faith. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all who, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the grass, its flowers fall, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive his, the crown of life, for which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say he is tempted. I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it, ha when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, for every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits for his, of his creatures. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, I know many of you. I don't know all of you. Uh, I am the pastor of Wonga Park. Andrew, you're the pastor of this church. Uh, I just thought I'd remind you of that. Um, and it is good to be here with you. I, I've been uh, I've been here a couple of times, and every time it is so uh, it's it's wonderful just the way you welcome uh, visitors and strangers. So uh, it is good to be here today. I thought I would share from the book of James. James is um, uh, a unique book in the Bible, uh, and for us to really understand James, for us to really be able to apply what James says to us and and how it affects our our lives, we have to be pretty careful that we understand what James is trying to do, how he fits uh, or his book fits into the New, uh, the New Testament, fits into the Bible. You see, James is quite unlike a number of the different books. When you read it without thinking, it can seem like a, a book that really promotes a kind of gospel of works. It can at first glance seem that James is telling us that as long as you obey these certain laws, uh, particularly he, he references Old Testament sort of morality, as long as you do these sorts of things, then, then you're fine before God. And it is for this reason that, that Martin Luther, uh, sort of we, we think of him as the father of the Reformation, he famously said of the book of James, it is an epistle of straw. It's a letter 
that is worth nothing other than to be thrown out, like one throws out worthless straw. But James isn't a worthless book. It isn't a letter of straw. It has a lot of godly wisdom to teach us, provided we understand what it's trying to say. So when we, uh, when we, when we dig into James, we have to understand uh, who it's written for, who it's written by, and what he's really trying to achieve. Now verse 1 gives us a clue of this. It's a book written by James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this James is Jesus' half-brother James. Uh, he, uh, he was a guy who became a great respected leader in the early church. The early church was into synods like we are into synods in the Reformed churches. There was this council where the Christians came together to discuss how God works, how salvation works, whether the Gentiles were being saved or or not, whether it was only for God's uh, Jewish people. And James is one of the key people at that discussion. He himself gives the final speech, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 15. And in that speech... He declares that Gentiles are also saved by the Lord's work and not by obeying the law. So when we, have to, when we, when we read James, we have to understand that he, he really isn't preaching a gospel of works. What he's doing is showing us what life as a Christian looks like. He's giving us this kind of mirror to measure ourselves by. He's giving us a way of diagnosing our own hearts before God. He's giving us a way of showing us uh, uh, the symptoms we display that the Holy Spirit needs to cure. James himself later on becomes known as James the Just. Not because he was particularly into justice as we understand it today, but because he was a man deeply committed to personal righteousness because of his love for his Lord. He wanted people to live really, I guess, a... a holy life, deeply rooted in faith in Jesus. You see, after all, that's what our faith is supposed to do, isn't it? It leads us to living a life that is more holy. And as we explore a little bit of James this morning, we have to keep in mind that that he isn't teaching us here about salvation by works, but he's teaching us about the works that come because of our salvation. And if you choose to read James, you know, if you choose to detour out of Romans and you read James, keep that in mind as you do. Now, James starts his book by marking, uh, remarking about two things. He says the Christian life is marked by two things. And the first mark of the Christian life is trials that test our faith. He says, consider it great joy my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be uh, mature, complete, lacking nothing. Now, we have to ask, what is James actually doing in chapter 1? He starts by encouraging his hearers, really all of us, to consider it pure joy whenever we have trials in life. Every time there's a kind of difficulty that comes us, he says, consider it joy. When you lose your job, that's joy right there. When you break your leg, more joy. When you are kicked out of your rugby career because you choose to quote scripture, joy, joy for you as well. 
But that's not how life works, is it? <laughs> These things don't give us joy when they happen. It's a bit like your best friend who comes uh, and, and you and he have been planning to go on this most amazing holiday uh, you will ever take. And you've been planning it for 10 years. You know, you've been saving up for this six-month trip around the world uh, in the best five-star hotels all over the world. And the week before the trip begins, uh, you fall down a ladder and you break both legs and you have to cancel your trip. All the money lost, your dream shattered, and as your friend comes to you to your hospital bedside, still with his ticket in hand because he's about to go to the airport, he opens his Bible with you, and because he's a good Christian friend, he comes to comfort you, and he reads James 1 verse 3, and he says, Consider it joy. God is shaping your faith. How lucky are you? It just doesn't work, does it? That does not produce joy in us. So how do we get joy out of trials and temptations? Well, we have to do some work on our text. You see, the word James uses here is not, it is joy. He says, consider it joy. To consider means to think about something and then to decide that that something is something. It means to say that when we have a trial... When we go through a hard time, use your brain. Think about your situation. Think deeply about what it is you're going through. Ask the question, what is God teaching me here? And then decide to see it as a joy. Not because we're supposed to be sort of masochistic because we enjoy pain, but because we know that when trials come, when temptations come, when tests come, they sharpen our faith. They ground us in Christ. They give us endurance to run the race. And notice James doesn't say, consider it pure joy if you face trials. No, he says, when. As we live life, this is what will happen. We will endure trials. Trusting in the Lord uh, doesn't mean that we don't go through difficult times. But because we trust in the Lord and because we consider our trials, think deeply about them, they, are, they can be used by God to shape us, to mature us, to perfect us, and in fact to complete us. The Greek that sits underneath this says, Consider it be a joy when you suffer all kinds of trials because they make you whole. What James is saying here is that trials and tests are good for us because they make us whole. We are holy people. We have holes in our character. We have blind spots. We have gaps. We have areas in our lives that do not line up with who God wants us to be. What James is saying is we can have joy in our trials because we know what God is doing with them. He's using them to shape us. He's plugging the gaps in our character. He's changing us into the people he wants us to be. He is making us complete. And then James goes on to give four examples of uh, sort of the everyday kind of trials that Christians have. A lack of wisdom, 
doubt in faith, poverty, and riches. So let's look briefly just at those four. A lack of wisdom. I don't know about you, but before I read this, I never considered a lack of wisdom to be a test of my faith. But when we lack wisdom, it really affects our faith. How? You see, when we lack wisdom, we fail to see whether something is going to be spiritually helpful for us or spiritually harmful for us. We fail to see what the outcome of what we're doing is going to be. We start getting involved in things that we really shouldn't that ultimately damage our trust and relationship with God. How do we know whether we have an issue with wisdom? Because we say things like, I don't need to worry about this because I can handle it. I am a mature Christian person. I can handle what I'm about to get involved in. Other Christians, yes, they should flee from sin, but I can handle it. That is foolishness. The Bible tells us to flee from sin, not hang out with it. And when the results of our sin come to roost, when the consequences of our actions come back to haunt us, friends, it is at that time, James tells us, to consider it pure joy that you are bearing the consequences of your actions because God is teaching you wisdom. He is shaping you. So wisdom, a lack of wisdom is a dangerous thing for our lives. But James says there's a really easy solution. Verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. You see, God delights in giving us wisdom. He, he wants us to grow in wisdom. He wants us to, to be wise. It is no surprise that so much of the Bible is dedicated to teaching people wisdom. James is a New Testament wisdom book. The Old Testament is full of wisdom. If only we would pick up the Bible and actually read it. But friends, if you find yourself out of your depth, your next step today is to ask God for wisdom. Ask Him to help you grow. Ask Him to let you see life as it really is. Ask Him to give you competence with regard to the complex realities of your life. And who knows? Maybe God will stir in you a heart to finally pick up that Bible and read it. Perhaps He will open your eyes to see what is really going on behind someone's actions so that you can love them because you see them with the eyes of God. You see past what they're doing to what is going on in their heart. You see, when we have wisdom like this, we start loving people like Jesus loved people. We can forgive what they do to us because we understand them. When you really understand what drives a person, that's what gives you compassion for them. When you understand them, you can love them despite the hurt that they have caused you. We see this when Jesus looks at the crowd as he hangs on the cross, he understands what drove them to it. And it is this wisdom in faith that God, uh, that God on the cross says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. 
So if you lack wisdom, ask God. Because God will teach you. And we can get to rely on God's wisdom. So wisdom is a, is a trial. Wisdom, lack of wisdom is a trial. The second trial James talks about is doubt. Now doubt is something that haunts every Christian at some point in time. Even this morning when we prayed, we prayed that God would help those who are having doubts in their faith. I'll let you in on a secret. I've had doubts about God. I've doubted my faith. I've asked questions about whether it even makes sense to trust in God. It is, I think, perfectly normal for a human being, Christian, to have doubt. Doubt is when you feel your faith ebbing, slipping, weakening. You start to question whether God is real, whether really Jesus did die for you. Uh, some people define doubt as, as the gap between our current faith and the perfect faith in God. So in a very real sense, each one of us suffers from doubt. John the Baptist, Jesus' own cousin, suffered from doubt. You can read that in Matthew 11. But how does doubt affect us? Well, James is pretty harsh. He says the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. It's a pretty harsh diagnosis. The doubter is driven and tossed by the wind, double-minded in all of his ways. Why is James so harsh? Why is he so offensive? You can't get away with that these days. You see, because when we doubt, our foundations are shaken. That's ultimately what he says. We have nothing to build on. It's like building your house on the sand. It looks okay for a while, but as soon as something happens, as soon as the wind picks up, it falls down, tumbles down. So what do we do when we doubt? Well, I'd like to suggest three things that I think are helpful. Three, yeah, three things um, that I suggest are helpful for when we doubt. The first thing is to doubt our doubts. To doubt our doubts. Michael Payton, uh, he writes for the Gospel Coalition. Helpful place, read their articles. He says, he puts it this way, he says, Why give your doubt the, the courtesy you don't give your faith? Is your doubt so compelling that it itself cannot be questioned? When you go through times of doubt, make sure that you're critical of your doubts as well. Because you see, doubt doesn't normally offer a better solution. It just nags at the solution you already have. For Christians, we can be sure that the central truths of our faith will never be outweighed by our doubts. Pestered, yes. But, uh, we, but never when we learn to doubt our doubts should our faith be overthrown. Doubting our doubts just makes logical sense. The second thing is to go to Scripture and let God's Word apply a healing balm to our soul. The Bible talks a lot about the surety we can have in our faith. We turn to passages like 1 John 5 verse 13 where John tells you, I'm writing this so that you may know that you have eternal life. You believe that Jesus is the Son of God. So if you believe that, then you know you are safe. We can go to places like 1 Peter 1, where he writes from verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, 
He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And then he says this, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. The inheritance that is kept in heaven for you, shielded by God's power until the coming of our salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. God himself shields our faith. He protects it even when we don't feel it. When we come to places like this, God's word applies a a healing salve to our hearts of doubt. We just have to be willing to listen. And thirdly, is to see what James is saying here, that our doubts can lead to joy. There is joy to be found in the trial of doubt. Why? Because it matures our faith. You see, friends, doubt is often a doorway, a gateway, a a birthing pain, if you like, to deepened faith. You know, various times throughout our Christian lives, we will come to crossroads where we have to reevaluate about what we actually believe about God. When we lose our job and we ask, God, are you with me in this? What do I really believe about whether you've got my best interest at heart? When you walk into your specialist's office with bad news waiting for you, what do I really believe about what God has for me? Is this for my good or bad? When your child looks at you and tells you that they hate you, what do we really believe about God when we come to that crossroads? We will go through crises of doubt, but they are a gateway to a deeper faith. We come out of it at the end stronger for it. When we come out the other end, we are far more secure in our faith, far more sure of our love for God, far more sure that Jesus ultimately has our back. And it teaches us discipline to deny our doubts and to put our unhelpful thoughts aside. In my life, when I come across doubts, I think I've become pretty good at the discipline of putting doubts out of my mind because of what God has already proven in my life. And ultimately, He proves it through His Son dying on the cross. He says, no matter what you are going through, I've already done that, so you can trust me. So doubts can be a big trial. And finally, He gives us the two trials, poverty and riches. From verse 9, he says, Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like the flower of the field. The sun rises, and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass. Its flower falls, and its beauty, uh, beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Notice that James here has far more to say about the spiritual danger of being wealthy than he does about the spiritual danger of being poor. You see, poverty can drive a person to commit sin out of a perceived necessity. You know, you steal food because you're hungry and you have to eat. Stealing is still wrong, even in that circumstance. But riches are a trial far more spiritually dangerous than poverty. Wealth gives us a sense of power, of 
position of importance. It is really easy for us to trust in our wealth to keep us safe rather than to trust in God for our salvation. It is really hard to trust in your poverty to keep you safe. And so James has an antidote for this. He says, uh, he, he says, rich people, listen to this. Here's a reality check. If you keep chasing money, you will wither away just like the scorching wind kills a flower. Having riches is a significant spiritual test. Friends, James is telling us, realize that if you have money, that you and that I are spiritually no better off before the person who has nothing. We are all beggars at the feast. It is only because Jesus has saved any of us that we are there. The New Testament picture of uh, you know, the parable where, where the master tells his servants, go into the highways and byways and bring the people in. No one is there because they're rich and wealthy. The rich and wealthy say, I'm too busy for God. We are all beggars at the feast. No one is better than any other. No matter how much money we have in the bank, how long we've studied at Bible school, how many books we've read, who you happen to know and mingle with, doesn't make an ounce of difference before God. We are all beggars at the table. We are just there by God's invitation because of what Jesus did on the cross. So having money is a trial that can lead us astray. Now I have to be clear that in James here, he's just giving four examples. He's not saying these are the only trials you will experience in life if it would only be that simple. There are going to be tons of trials you experience through life. And he just gives these as an example. He says that every person will go through trials. That's life. James is saying, when they come to you, consider them joy because God is shaping you into a better Christian. But there's some a little bit more work we need to do. You see, that's all good and well. But most of us don't have the strength to consider our trials joy, do we? We need something else. We need endurance. That's the second mark of a Christian. The first one is considering our trials a joy. The second mark James gives us, and I finish with this, uh, is endurance. From verse 12. He said, Blessed is the one who endures trials, because he has stood the test, uh, sorry, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Do not be deceived, my dear friends, uh, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like the shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, do you see what James is doing here? He is rooting our trials in their eternal significance. He said, blessed is the one who endures trials. Why? Because when they have stood the test, they receive the crown of life that God promised them. 
There is an eternal horizon that James has in view here. There's an eternal crown of glory. There's an end goal. He says, keep your eyes on the prize. If you want to be able to endure your trial, whatever it is, if you want the strength to endure your trial, keep your eyes on the final prize, the goal of your salvation. When we consider about what Jesus has already done for us on the cross, that he has already taken our punishment on himself, that he's already paid the price for our rebellion, that he has already borne the wrath of God in our place. When we have that in view, we can see what's happening in our lives as part of God's bigger plan for us. We know that God is not punishing us through our trials because he's already taken the punishment on himself. And if that's true, that what's going on in my life and what's going on in your life is there to make you whole. God is using it to shape you into the perfect person he wants you to be. Friends, do you know what? God is not content with anything less than your perfection. And because he is gracious, he allows you to go through the trials that will shape you into that perfect person. But it takes patience. It takes time for trials to work through our hearts. Tom Wright puts it this way. He says, James draws attention to the result of the test. Patience. Don't panic. Don't overreact. Don't turn a problem into a crisis. Be patient. He says, imagine that your life is like a house. Faith is what happens when you look out the window, away from yourself, to the God who is much greater to you. Patience is what happens inside the house while you do that. James, James roots our endurance in God's character. He says, in effect, you see, friends, brothers and sisters, God does not change. He is constant when your life circumstances are not. And he has given you a new life so that what's happening right now is producing that fruit. So friends, when we go through a trial, our joy comes not because we enjoy the pain, but it comes because we can trust that God is doing it to change us into the people He wants us to be. If you remember nothing else from today, remember this. We need our trials. We need the sufferings we have. And because God loves us enough, because God is gracious enough to us, He lets us go through that discomfort. He lets us walk through the pain. He lets us go through the disappointment because He is shaping us into something far more beautiful than the best we can think of of ourselves. He gives us trials because He's our loving Father. It's like a pearl. The only way you can create a pearl is to bring discomfort to the oyster. It needs to be infiltrated by a bit of sand or grit or dust. And that uncomfortableness is covered over layer by layer inside the oyster until finally, after a long time, you are left with a beautiful pearl. God is shaping you into that pearl. But it requires the sand. And when we see that, when we have the wisdom to see that, then we can consider our trials joy. 
because we know God is making us into pearls. And that gives me joy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, in many ways, it is easier to see you as someone who only ever gives what we would consider good gifts. Riches, health, wealth. But Lord, we, we know that you are far bigger than that. That you love us enough to even give us the uncomfortable, difficult suffering times because you are shaping us into people that are not merely vain, conceited and materialistic, but into people who are, uh, who are being formed into the image of your Son. And so Lord, we thank you that you are making us into pearls, but we confess that it is hard when we have to start out with the sand. And so we pray that you give us endurance. We pray that you give us uh, the faith we need, the trust we need in you to consider our various kinds of trials a joy. And Lord, when we look to your Son, when we look to what you have already done on the cross, we know that you loved us enough even for that. And so because of that, we can trust you even today. Even when we can't see how what's happening to us is shaping us. We know that you love us, Lord, and we thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.